Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. This is your mad prophet of the airwaves, and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Thursday, November the 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2022. It's Friday's Eve. TheRichardSarrettShow.com. TheRichardSarrettShow.com. That's my website. Check it out. You can email me through the contact page. You can learn about my cast of regular contributors on the About page. You can listen to uh, all my previous episodes on the Listen page. Heck, you can even call the show from the home page. And the number to call, incidentally, 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. And I've uh, carved out some time to take your calls this hour and next hour. I've been talking a lot the last few days about the Atlantic. This is the left-leaning extremely biased magazine owned by uh, multi-billionaire Lauren Powell Jobs, and she's the uh, majority stakeholder. She's worth about $20 billion, most of which, almost entirely, she inherited from her late husband, Steve Jobs. And uh, an opinion piece written in the Atlantic, in the idea section, by a professor at Brown, Co- Brown College, which is a ridiculously woke elite liberal arts college uh, in Rhode Island. Emily Oster wrote the piece, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Let's focus on the future and fix the problems we still need to solve. To which I say no to amnesty. 
I say apologies to the unvaccinated and to the vaccinated who were coerced into taking the vaccine, which was most people, I I garner. Uh, Then comes an official inquiry. Then maybe some indictments, then possible jail time. Then comes restitution. No amnesty. So a woman on Twitter, she's an M.D., Trudy Savewright, I believe her name is pronounced, Trudy Savewright. She describes herself as a, uh, in her bio as a Christian Jamaican-American, an OBGYN hospitalist interested in COVID and medical ethics. And she took a look at the left-leaning Atlantic, and she did kind of a, a side-by-side comparison, then and now. So, in other words, then was being written, what was being written in the Atlantic during covid Right? That's the then. And here's a sample. This is the Atlantic during COVID in the ideas section. The anti-vaccine right brought human sacrifice to America. Since last summer, the conservative campaign against vaccination has claimed thousands of lives for no ethically justifiable purpose. That was the Atlantic then. Of course, all of that is unscientific nonsense. We knew it then. We know it now. Here are some more. Again, this is what was being written in the Atlantic in the ideas section during COVID. The same magazine now asking for a a pandemic amnesty. Here's the headline. Unvaccinated people need, need to bear the burden. Beyond limiting the coronavirus's flow from hotspots to the rest of the country, allowing only vaccinated people on domestic flights will change minds too. In other words, here is the Atlantic openly advocating for coercion. Also lying about the science, suggesting that the unvaccinated were solely responsible for spreading the virus. Here's some more. Vaccine refusers don't get to dictate terms anymore. People who opt out of shots shouldn't expect their employers, health insurers and fellow citizens to accommodate them. So in other words, the unvaccinated should be fired, which, which they were, left without health insurance, and should be shunned generally by society. Here's some more. Some Americans no longer believe in the common good. They are now only thinking of themselves. In other words, if you don't get the vaccinated, you're a bad person. So this is the Atlantic then, during COVID. And now... Now, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. We need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. Some of us were never in the dark about COVID or the vaccine and were villainized and dehumanized and punished. No amnesty. Justice. No amnesty. Justice. If uh, you have school-age children here in Ontario, it looks like your children will be home at at least for tomorrow and possibly longer. Tens of thousands of librarians, custodians, and early childhood educators across Ontario set to walk off the job tomorrow after the provincial government, the Ford government, tabled legislation to ban a strike and push a contract on these education workers. CUPE the Canadian Union of Public Employees. 
and the Ontario School Board Council of Unions, which represent approximately 55,000 members. So again, librarians, early childhood educators, various support staff, looking for annual salary increases of 11.7%. 11.7%. The Ford government says they'll invoke the, uh, the notwithstanding clause if they need to, which allows provincial or federal governments to uh, override the Charter of Rights in order to make sure the legislation banning a strike isn't struck down by the courts, or in the event that it's struck down by the courts, they would then invoke the notwithstanding clause. This is uh, the principle of parliamentary supremacy. And suddenly people who support the job action and support the QP workers are trying to argue that if you support the trucker convoy and their right to protest and you're against the evoking of the Emergencies Act, then you must also be against the use of the notwithstanding clause. Of course, using that logic, then those that are against Ford's possible use of the notwithstanding clause must also stand with the protesters who took part in the Freedom Convoy and must, ergo, be against the Emergencies Act. Is that the way we're going to play this? The fact is there are two separate issues. The notwithstanding clause is lawful. It's in the Charter, Section 33. It's a lawful provision which gives governments the power to override certain portions of the Charter for a five-year term. That's not the same as invoking, basically, the War Measures Act to quell what was a peaceful, arguably inconvenient, at times loud, maybe boisterous, protest. Two separate issues. Now, if Ford and his creepy cabinet hadn't locked down our schools on several occasions during COVID, which was unscientific, unnecessary, extremely damaging, then perhaps I'd have more tolerance for a job action. But our children have suffered enough. And this job action is not about the children. They always say, oh, it's about the children. If you care about the children, these strikes are never about the children. And an annual 11%, 11.7% increase, just off the rails, not even in the ballpark, not realistic. Now, having said that, should politicians be giving themselves big fat raises? Certainly not. Did they during COVID? Absolutely they did. Pigs at the trough. But don't try and conflate the rights of the Freedom Convoy protesters and the job action of the QP support staff and the notwithstanding clause. That's... That's what is known as a conflation fallacy. Two separate issues. Uh, We have a terrible show for you today. I got nothing. Quite honestly, Declan, Jacob, and I, we decided, you know, we'd rather just put our feet up at the uh, the local watering hole. and, And then we lost track of time. And here we are, no show. Sorry. Our bad. Yeah, maybe I should write a piece for The Atlantic. It's time to declare a talk show amnesty. What are you going to do? Just kidding. Come on. We have a fantastic show. It's another Edward R. Murrow Award winner. You know, it's been weeks and weeks. How long has it been, Jacob, since we, we brought home the hardware? Another Edward R. Murrow Award. It's been, a, it's been a while. I think that streak is about to end today. That streak of bad luck. Uh, the Governor General's Mideast trip last March. Remember that? 
Maybe not. Anyway, it cost taxpayers $1.3 million. Why? What good came of it? Now, I guess Her Excellency Mary May Simon ate, drank, and made merry along with her friends. But what else? Why are we on the hook for that? Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation will be here last order of business in hour two. Also this hour, you can uh, you can call in during the second hour, uh, during the uh, second hour. Sorry, during the second hour, you can call in. Speak to me. Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred. That'll be around five forty. That's it. Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred. The Trudeau government wants to bring in a, a, a half a million new immigrants per year. A half a million new immigrants every year starting in 2025. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Yes, we're, we're actually, we're allowed to talk about that. It's not racist to want to have an honest discussion about immigration levels. The, uh, the Honorable Max Bernier from the People's Party of Canada will be here. Also, Hour 2, he's our feature interview. This hour, in defense of women, a New York City pediatric surgeon speaking out against so-called sex changes for kids. Mia Ashton from the Post Millennial and Cause Bar will be here. And I'll take your calls this hour as well, around 440 289-275-9600. Same number. Coincidence? Perhaps. 289-275-9600. But coming up first, day 16 of the Emergency Act Inquiry. Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel News is here with the highlights and the lowlights. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Thursday, November the 3rd. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, I've lost track. What is this, day 16, day 18 of the uh, the inquiry? Sheila Gunn-Reed, Alberta Bureau Chief for Rebel News, is here. Hey, Sheila, how are you? I'm great, and it's day 16, although it feels like day 100. <laughs> and it feels like there's no end in sight for this thing. There's just so much information and so many people to get to. And we really even, we've really only just started to sort of pick away the scab of the trucker commission. We're just now hearing from some of the organizers and also from some of the people who call themselves organizers. We haven't even heard from the the key organizer, Tamara Leach yet. We haven't heard from Brenda Lucky yet. We haven't heard from Justin Trudeau yet. So there's still a lot yet to come. And we are apparently halfway through about. Uh, we did hear from uh, James, is it pronounced, pronounced Bowder or Bowder? James Bowder. Yes. James Bowder, he, yes. Yes, he's actually still on the stand. I was tuning in uh, just as I was getting ready for our call here. Um, He was described as sort of kind of fringe-y by some of the other people who have testified, um, Tom Marazzo and uh, Chris uh, Barber. They have sort of testified that they didn't really know him. They know he was enthusiastic and he had some strange ideas. And there's a lot of homemade lawyering going on in his testimony. But he seems well-meaning, if not poorly informed about the legal workings of Canadian civics. Um, and he's still testifying right now. He's the guy behind the controversial MOU that was presented that the mainstream media just decided that this thing should be associated with the entire convoy. And it sort of called for this citizens panel that would override the government and then just, I suppose, govern with the help of the Senate. Um, but he really, besides his enthusiasm, I don't think he played too, too much of a role in the convoy, despite what the media tells you. Right. Um, now, the the person that's 
um, questioning him right now. Mijakovsky is is he representing the is he representing the government? I'm not sure who he's representing, but he's really going after Bowder and trying to portray him as you just said a real fringe, like asking him things like, "Do you believe that 9/11 was an inside job?" and um, uh, "Do you believe that the U.S. election was rigged?" Like. I, is that is is that the the purpose of that bizarre line of questioning? Is just trying to discredit him entirely, or right? But that's not what any of this is about, is it? No. James Bowder's personal views, whether or not he believes in QAnon, whether or not he watches Alex Jones, that really has nothing to do with the fact that Justin Trudeau invoked a counterterrorism law on a peaceful anti-COVID mandate demonstration that up until the time of the invocation of the never-before-used counterterrorism law, there had really been five-ish sort of violent charges while thousands of people had converged on the city. Not even a single window had been broken. And I think two of those charges I said there were committed by residents of Ottawa against the convoy. So um, I'm not sure whether or not James Bowder believes in aliens is relevant to Justin Trudeau's actions. You can hold whatever crazy views you want as long as they don't compel you to violence. I'm sensing, I don't know, uh, and I haven't been, you know, obviously following it as closely as you and everyone at Rebel and, and some other organizations, but I'm I'm sensing that some of the the lawyers for either the Ottawa uh, uh, residents that are um, the Ottawa residents group or the the government lawyers are getting a little testy with uh, some of these convoy organizers, whether it was Pat King yesterday uh, or Tom Marazzo or today with Bowder and um, with um, uh, Benjamin Dichter. What are your thoughts? Um, I can see how James Bowder could get on a guy's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise with Pat King, um, but I'm not a lawyer. Um you know, James Bowder was, God bless uh, Justice Rollo. He's being very patient with some of the convoy organizers. And you have to realize the convoy organizers, a lot of them are subject to gag laws. So th- while they go into somewhat soliloquies and uh, uh, that's, you know, James Bowder has been doing that today. Um, Pat King did that a little bit yesterday. You have to realize they haven't been able to say anything since February. So they've got a lot of things they've got to get off their chest and they feel like this is their opportunity to finally be able to say something without violating the terms of their bail conditions. Um, But yeah, we saw, um, I call him the lawyer for the Ottawa busybodies, Paul Champ. Yesterday, he, uh, (laughs) he got into quite a heated back and forth with Pat King and he was fact checking Pat King. And that's actually not the lawyer's job in this thing. The the judge will determine what is fact and what is fiction after the fact, after he's heard all the testimony. And Justice Rollo actually stopped Paul Champ and reminded him that this is not how a lawyer behaves. You're not supposed to be offering testimony of your own to counter what Pat King was saying about the actions of the Ottawa residents. So we're seeing a lot of um, the lawyers for the other side, I would say, starting to lose patience with the convoy organizers, much in the same way the convoy organizers have a few things they want to get off their chest. Some of these activist lawyers are feeling the same way. All right, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss uh, further. Sheila Gunn-Reed, Rebel News, Alberta Bureau Chief, host of The Gun Show, Wednesdays at 9, rebelnews.com. Stay with us. Back with more in a moment. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's The Richard Serra Show. 
Welcome back. Day 16 of the Emergencies Act Inquiry. Sheila Gunn-Reed is with us from Rebel News, Alberta Bureau Chief and host of The Gun Show, seen Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Rebelnews.com. Uh, so we were talking a little bit about uh, Bowder, who is um, a convoy organizer. Um, B.J. Dichter also took the, uh, the, the, um, the stand. I don't know if any we use that terminology, take the stand. or Anyway, he was uh, in the inquiry today. And um, again, the, the line of questioning asked, uh, he, he was asked by, I guess it was the OP council, whether he considers treason to be a serious crime. Um, and then also asked him about his, um, his interview on Russian TV. Uh, and the lawyer kept hammering away, you know that's Russian propaganda, right? Uh, which was kind of a, I don't know, a, an interesting exchange. And uh, uh, Victor's response, or Dictor, sorry, his response was, well, he was trying to bait the CBC um, because, of course, the CBC took that that story and ran with it that the whole the convoy was was being funded and it was a, a Russian um, a sponsored, you know, thing. What did what did you make of uh, B.J. Dichter today? You know, it, sometimes I watch this stuff and I think it's a wonder they ever made it to Ottawa and stayed as long as they did, because there are a lot of big egos involved and you can see the different factions of the convoy, um, how they sort of split off. During those final days, as the pressure was coming from the police and from the federal government, the, it, the unity that they had. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Started to fracture. And you can see that Ben Dichter's got some real problems with Keith Wilson. And Keith Wilson, the convoy lawyer, has some real problems with Ben Dichter. Keith Wilson says he has no idea where all the cryptocurrency that flooded into the convoy went. He would like a full accounting of that. He says Ben Dichter has never provided that because he was in charge of crypto. And then, you know, Ben Dichter was doing things to troll the CBC, which I don't think was in the end, all that helpful um, when you're trying to fight misinformation against the convoy. Um, but, you know, in the end, on the outside looking in, 
whatever was happening within the convoy still seems far less chaotic than what was happening within the OPS and their relationship with the OPP and the city and the federal government. There was still more chaos on the official side than what you're seeing from these truckers. Uh, When is Tamara Leach taking the stand? She's scheduled to be on the stand today sometime. I'm not sure if we'll even get close to going through all of her testimony. I think we'll just get through possibly her. uh, The commission lawyers go through her evidence, usually for an hour, hour and a half. That's how it works with the testimony. And then it goes into the different lawyers. It breaks out, I think, normally starting with the federal government. So I think we might get through some of her testimony with the commission lawyers, but I'm sure she'll be on the stand or I guess, as they say, giving testimony all day tomorrow. Um, Okay. Getting back to Dictor for a moment, something that came up was uh, during his testimony, the question as to whether there was a deal between the truckers and the city of Ottawa, uh, because he was asked and, and, and he was staying in the same hotel as Tamara Leach and just a couple of floors above or below, and they were, by all account, in regular uh, discussions. They were texting back and forth, and um, Dichter made it sound, sound as if they, there wasn't a deal. There wasn't a deal between the truckers and Ottawa and uh, the city of Ottawa. Um, and I suppose that would play into, would it not, the the proponents of invoking the emergency act because they would say, well, if there, if, if there wasn't a deal then, and we weren't close to a deal, then we had to do something. Yeah. It's, it's odd. I wonder how much the convoy leadership was keeping Ben Dichter in the loop. He was supposed to be in, in charge of communications for the truckers and he quickly lost control of that. I don't think he helped himself by going on RT. So I don't know if they were keeping him in the loop. Were they concerned that maybe he was leaking things to the wrong people? Because we do know there's a paper trail about those deals between Keith Wilson, the lawyer for the convoy at the time, and the mayor's office and city management. So we know there's a paper trail for a deal that was done, basically, and truckers were acting in good faith to move It ultimately amounted to 100 vehicles, some 40 large trucks as a show of good faith to uh, seal that deal. So I don't know how much the truckers were at that point keeping Dictor in the loop. I I, I think maybe they were starting to cut out some people. You know, at at some point they started to distance themselves away from Pat King, as he said, some more outlandish things about politicians catching bullets. And they started to distance themselves from James Bowder as he started issuing these undemocratic MOUs. So I think there was some political hygiene happening once lawyers started getting involved. I like that term, political hygiene. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll look forward to Tamara Leach's uh, testimony and uh, uh, perhaps we can connect tomorrow and and discuss it, assuming that, uh, uh, you know, they they get to the the meat, as they say, during tomorrow's testimony or perhaps even today. Sheila Gunn-Reed, Rebel News, Alberta Bureau Chief, host of The Gun Show. Sheila, thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. All right. When we come back, your phone calls, 289-275-9600, 289 275 
9600. Call me now. Stay with us. The Richard Serrett Show on Saga 960. Back with more after these. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. We've carved out a little time for you to call in and weigh in with your thoughts, opinions on just about anything. If you want to talk about the uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act, if you've been following it, some of it, I I must say, is pretty good theater. A lot of it is, uh, quite frankly, a bit of a snore. However, uh, you may have some thoughts on that. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. And we just have about four and a half, five minutes here. And then we'll open up the phone lines again in the second hour. uh, In about one hour, uh, one hour exactly. uh, At 540. 289-275-9600. Coming up a little bit later in the show, Mia Ashton will be here during our In Defense of Women segment. Mia writes for the post-millennial, and uh, she's also with COSBAR. That's Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights, and we um, we stand up for women's rights every Thursday on this program. Uh, and Mia's also the lead on COSBAR's child safeguarding campaign. And uh, she's going to talk about this surgeon and medical school professor in uh, New York City who... Um, who says we are right in the middle of an extraordinary medical atrocity and likened gender-affirming hormones and surgeries to, get this, lobotomies and eugenics. Lobotomies and eugenics. This is uh, Dr. Michael Egnor, pediatric neurosurgeon and professor at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University in New York. And called the advice parents, <coughs> excuse me, called the advice parents are being given uh, regarding the so-called gender-affirming treatments basically criminal. So we'll uh, speak with Mia Ashton in uh, the next 10 minutes or so about that. Also, the Honorable Max Bernier will be here, leader of the People's Party of Canada. The federal government has announced that Canada will welcome a half a million new immigrants every year, starting in 2025. I believe that's a th- it's a three-year uh, program they're talking about. So, over the span of three years, beginning in 2025, 1.5 million new immigrants to this country. Good idea, bad idea. You know, it's funny that even having a discussion about immigration levels now is somehow seen as racist, which is absolutely absurd. We have to be able to have these discussions. Immigration is designed, I mean, it's an extension of economic policy, really. You know, to it's supposed to be of benefit to the country, to the citizens of the country. It's not something we do. I mean, it's, it's separate from a refugee program where you agree you're going to bring people in from a certain jurisdiction because perhaps there's a civil war going on there or there's political uh, persecution happening or religious persecution. That's, that's something else entirely. But immigration is an extension of 
the overall economic policy? You know, do we have labor shortages in a certain area? Let's bring in some some people that can fill those jobs. Demographically speaking, you know, are we able to, given the current birth rate in the country, can we continue to sustain things like the Canada Pension Plan and um, old age security long term if we don't have enough workers in the country? And then you have to look at the the economic costs. New immigrants coming into the country, you know, typically for the first maybe 10 years or so, they're not earning on average what other Canadians are, and so, but they're still drawing from the, uh, the, the social safety net, if you will. So what is the cost per immigrant coming into the country? What is the net cost? Are they taking more out of the system than they're putting in? It's just number crunching. It's not about racism. And we have to have these honest discussions about immigration levels. And we'll do that with the Honorable Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party, coming up in hour two. All right. Mia Ashton from Cosbar and uh, the Post Millennial is next for our In Defense of Women segment. Stay tuned. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. In Defense of Women on The Richard Serrett Show. All right, welcome back. A uh, New York pediatric neurosurgeon is uh, speaking out against... So-called sex changes for kids. He's calling what we're in the midst of. He calls it an extraordinary medical atrocity. An extraordinary medical atrocity. Mia Ashton is a writer for the Post Millennial and is the lead on Cosbar's child safeguarding campaign, which seeks to alert Canadians to the harm gender ideology is doing to our children. We'll get to her in a moment. All right. So this uh, surgeon, pediatric neurosurgeon in New York, his name is Dr. Michael Egnor. I'm going to uh, just continue on in her stead a little bit until we figure this out, a technical uh, glitch. Anyway, um, he was interviewed recently, Dr. Michael Egnor, pediatric neurosurgeon, professor at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University in New York. In an interview with The Federalist, and he said, the advice parents are being given regarding the so-called gender-affirming treatment of children is basically criminal. Basically criminal. He writes, or he says, rather, I have taught in the ethics course here at Stony Brook. We teach the students and the young doctors about various ethnical, sorry, ethical atrocities in medical history, he listed his examples, lobotomies, eugenics, and the Tuskegee experiments, which was a study where black men who had uh, syphilis were simply allowed to die even though they were, there were treatments available so that the um, uh, progression of syphilis could be studied. He says, I point out at that time all of these atrocities were widely accepted in the medical community. 
We'll try Mia again. Can you hear me, Mia? I can now. Sorry about that. That's okay. That's all right. You're with us now. Mia Ashton with the Post Millennial and also Cosbar's lead on child the child lead, uh, safeguarding campaign, the child safeguarding campaign. Uh, all right. So I was just in your absence just um, discussing this article you wrote for the Post Millennial about Dr. Michael Egnor. Now, this is explosive, his statements, talking about what we are seeing in this gender affirming care. He's calling it an extraordinary medical atrocity, um, comparing it to uh, some of the ethical medical atrocities like lobotomies, um, the uh, Tuskegee um, syphilis experiments and so forth. This is, um, this is pretty powerful stuff. It is. And he, he is absolutely right. It's, it, I think I do believe it is going to turn out to be the medical world's greatest crime. And I've said many times that I think it's actually worse than lobotomies because as awful as lobotomies were when they were invented in the 1940s, the only other option was if you were mentally ill was a mental asylum and the conditions in those were horrific. So now we have, we're committing another terrible medical crime, but we have another option for these young people who are having body parts chopped off, who are being chemically castrated and having all sorts of very invasive procedures done to them. We have another option and it's compassionate and it's ethical, and it's just psychotherapy to guide them through and help them accept their bodies, which, based on all research that we have to date, almost every child would get over the gender dysphoria and would find comfort in their body if we allowed them to. Except that that type of therapy, uh, I guess, um, is, is banned, is criminalized in Canada. Uh, that's considered conversion therapy, which just just seems so bizarre that you can't even have a child engage in some, you know, talking therapy to, to become comfortable in their body or to address any of the other underlying uh, mental health issues like depression, like autism, for example. Um, do you think Egnor is going to make any traction here? Is he, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this, how it's always important for that first, you know, that first person to speak out. Uh, because he or she can embolden others. Is this going to open the floodgates, do you think? I, I, well, I would hope so, but I actually don't think it will. I think it's going to take um, several, well, many, many hundreds, thousands of doctors with the courage like this man to come out and speak about the harm that's being done because the the institutional capture is is so deep he talks about how the um the American Academy of Pediatrics the Medi American Medical Association they 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 all um endorse this and so for a real change to happen we're going to need an awful lot more people to come out and it's dribs and drabs at the moment so i hope the floodgates open soon he he, he explains or he he says that this is Again, this gender affirming care, uh, you know, cross hormones, hormone um, puberty blockers, surgery. Uh, he describes it as not only basically criminal, but he says it's malpractice. I mean, even if everyone is doing it and everyone agrees that, you know, it should be done, it's still malpractice. What are your thoughts? I think it is. You see, 
as he points out, rightly so, lobotomies were widely accepted and, and the, 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 the right treatment and everybody was doing them in the 1940s and 50s. And, and we now know that they were barbaric and that we would consider that malpractice. So just because everyone's doing it doesn't make it right. And he, he makes the comparison with people who, who want limbs cut off or want their spinal cord severed. He's saying you don't do what a mentally ill person asks you to do just to satisfy their mental illness. And so there was a doctor in Scotland who was chopping off healthy limbs in the 1990s because people identified as amputees. And then it was deemed unethical and they forced him to stop. But what's the difference between that and chopping off penises and breasts? Right, right. He also makes the comparison to giving uh, someone with anorexia a gastric bypass, which I think is is um, because, you know, body dysphoria, gender dysmorphia, gender dysmorphia, um, you know, perhaps some similarities there. Uh, in your article, you talk about how, thank God, in Sweden, Finland and now England, you know, they're they're moving away. They are moving in the opposite direction. Why is it different over there? Why did what, what do they see that we that are that they don't seem to be able to get here? Well, those three nations have done what's called systematic reviews of the evidence. And that is where you compile all of the evidence for a treatment, not just cherry pick the ones that say what you want to say. Um, and you look at all of the evidence. So those three nations have done that and they have found that there is no evidence to support this. Um, the reason that they have done that, I think, is there was a, a strong movement raising awareness and public opinion changed. Here in Canada, we pretend that Sweden, Finland and England don't exist. We don't have any mainstream. Well, no, the National Post has been doing OK recently, but largely the mainstream media ignore it. And so most people don't even know that it's really happening. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Well, hopefully, Dr. Michael Egnor, the pediatric neurosurgeon, is the first of many to come forward and speak out again, come, uh, talking about um, this gender-affirming care and uh, sex change surgery as a medical atrocity. Couldn't agree more. Mia Ashton, writer for the Post Millennial and Cause Bar's lead on their child safeguarding campaign. Mia, great work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. You can follow Mia on Twitter at underscore cry Mia, M-I-A, River, at underscore cry Mia River. Hour two of the Richard Serrett Show coming your way. The Honorable Max Bernier from the People's Party of Canada will be here. We'll talk immigration. Stay with us. 
The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Forgetting we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. And welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. Check out the website, therichardserrettshow.com. And the numbers to call, 289-275-9600. And we will carve out some time uh, for calls in about um, 35, 40 minutes. 289-275-9600. Also, joining us a little bit later this hour, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Her Excellency... Right Honorable Mary Simon, our Governor General, and uh, her staff and uh, the people that she invited on this big Mideast trip, I guess back last March, rang up a a bill of $1.3 million. Seriously? I mean, what good comes of that? What good? You know, we're we're on the hook for that, $1.3 million. You might say that's a drop in the bucket. True, true. But we have to rein in this kind of profligate spending. It's just, it's an insult really to hardworking Canadians. I'm sure she, uh, she ate, drank and made merry as did, uh, everyone else who was on that trip, but that's just irresponsible. Franco Terrazano will be here with that story. And as I say, we'll take your calls now. Immigration. The uh, federal government has announced that by 2025, they're going to welcome 500,000, a half million new immigrants to this country. Uh, we're pretty close to that now. I think it was uh, 460,000 this year, 405,000 the year before, something like that. So by 2025, nearly a million and a half new immigrants. And then I guess going forward, it'll be a half a million a year. And uh, it seems like we're not allowed to even have a conversation about immigrant immigration levels. If you dare to question immigration or immigration levels, you're branded a racist. Well, that's just nonsense. It's got to stop. We have to be able to have adult conversations about immigration levels. It is, after all, as I said earlier, an extension of economic policy. Refugee programs is a different matter. We try and help other people when we can, people that are subjected to persecution, religious, uh, political, and otherwise. But we have immigration levels. We bring people into the country if it can be of benefit to Canadians and to Canada. It's economics. The Honorable Max Bernier is with us. He's the leader of the People's Party of Canada in the midst, I believe, of his uh, Northern Ontario tour. But I think you got fogged in today, Max. How are you? 
Yes, you're right. I'm in Montreal today. I'll be there tomorrow in Northern Ontario in uh, Timmins tomorrow night. But yes, yeah, speaking about immigration, what you said in the beginning, saying that in Canada, if you question the immigration levels, uh, you you cannot do that. Uh, actually, in English Canada, I must say, because in Quebec, in French, at the last uh, general election, we had that discussion the the Conservative Party of Quebec, uh, the Liberals, the the Quebec Solidaire, and La CAC had that discussion. You know, uh, La CAC was saying maximum fifty thousand people. The Liberals were saying maximum eighty thousand people. So we have that debate in Quebec because. For Quebec, it's important to keep the French language and, and their, their status. So, but we don't have that debate in English Canada. I started that debate in 2019 and I believe it is important because yes, 500,000 newcomers every year starting in 2025. That is mass immigration. That is the population of Newfoundland every year in our country starting in 2025. So, and, and if you compare that with other Western countries per capita, it is the, it is the way you cannot compare that because uh, we will receive more immigrants per capita than any other Western countries. So it is mass immigration, but people are saying, oh, Maxime, you know, we need uh, these people because uh, we have uh, a lack of manpower in Canada. Okay, but we had that mass immigration since uh, Trudeau, since 2019. We had a lot of people coming uh, since 2019, and we still have that challenge of lack of manpower. So more and more immigrants is not the solution. The solution for the lack of manpower is the increase in our productivity with uh, new technology. That's the solution. And... And by the way, in this uh, uh, f- f- half a million people, only 25% of them, only 25% of them are skilled immigrants, are people who are coming here with a job because a Canadian entrepreneur was not able to find a Canadian for that job. So 75% of them are coming on the reunification of families or refugees. So they are not skilled uh, workers. And and when the when these people are coming, uh, they they are consuming consuming goods and services, and so we need to produce more for them. So more immigration is not a solution to our lack of manpower in our country. Uh, how do you feel this is going to, um, let's say, exacerbate, or do you feel it will exacerbate? The, um, the the housing problem that we have, it will because we have the data right now. Forty percent of these immigrants right now are going to Toronto and Vancouver, and so that's pushing pressure on the the prices of houses over there. And after that, people in Toronto and Vancouver are moving in other cities, and you have the same challenge in other cities. So, <laughs> the solution for the, our housing uh, crisis is to have fewer immigrants. That's the solution. You cannot build houses as fast as possible to be able to, uh, uh, to fight that, that challenge that we have. The solution is mathematical and fewer immigrants will help. 
and that's uh, that's log- that's logical but it's too bad we are the only national political party in Canada that is speaking about that and we will always because we want to preserve our country yes we are open we believe in sustainable immigration not in mass immigration that's the big difference with us and all these establishment political parties, including Pierre Polyev and the Conservative. The Honorable Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, is here. We're talking about uh, immigration levels. And by 2025, the immigration levels will be a half million immigrants. Uh, do we know how, how, how much further into the distance that's going to go, into the future rather? Is that going to be every year for the foreseeable future starting in 2025? A half million every single year going forward? Yes, it will be every every year starting in 2025. You're absolutely right. And I believe that the liberals are doing that because, you know, the, <laughs> the trend is the majority of these immigrants are voting liberals. And so that's the trend. And, uh, and you know, it took five years for a newcomers to be able to be a Canadian citizen. So... All these immigrants that came in 2019 will be able to vote for the next election in 2025. And all the immigrants that came in 2020 will be able to vote in the election in 2025. So politically, it's very good for the liberals. And uh, I believe that is the, the reason why they're doing that. Is this in any way, do you believe, tied in with the uh, – because Canada is a signatory to this, the United Nations Migration Pact? That, that's, that can be another reason. You're right, because uh, for the UN, migration must be normal. And, you know, you're a citizen of Zimbabwe and you must have the right to go to any country. Uh, <laughs> and so, yes, that's why Canada signed the Migration Compact. And and with that, we have that mass immigration. And we at the PPC, we won't sign that compact. We won't we won't participate in that. We will have an immigration policy uh, in line with the needs of our country and and to to uh, to be able to uh, uh, be this country in 20 years. I don't want our country to be like in France when there's no Zog no go zone over there. You cannot go there. And there's two uh, kinds of law. And, and you have the same thing in Germany, the same challenges over there. So we don't want that in our country. That's why we need to have a sustainable uh, immigration system and, and levels that would be able to, these people must be able to integrate our society. And if we have half a million, half a million people a year, it would be very tough for them to be part of our society. It would be tough for us to integrate them. And it would be a cost for our society also. And we are broke. What should the immigration level be in, uh, in, to your, in your estimation? But for us, it must be a maximum of 150,000 a year. But the huge majority of them, maybe 65% of them must be skilled immigrants. 65%, not 20% like today. So uh, that's our proposal. One hundred and Did you say 165,000 or 150,000? 150,000 a year, yeah. 65% should be highly skilled workers. All right. We'll uh, continue to discuss immigration. The Honorable Max Bernier stays with us, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, back with more of the Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. 
Uh, so, Max, I was just reading, this is a, a study the Fraser Institute uh, did. This is, um, you know, maybe 10 years old. Uh, I don't know if there's been another one. You'll tell me if there's been another, a, a newer one uh, done by the Fraser Institute or anyone else. But they were talking about the financial burden uh, when you bring immigrants in because they tend to have lower average incomes and therefore lower tax payments than other Canadians, even according to this study, up to 10 years after their arrival. But at the same time, these, you know, these immigrants uh, on average are absorbing at least the same amount of social benefits of, uh, of other Canadians. And they worked it out and they were saying, as a result, this is again, 10 years ago, $6,000 is annually transferred to the average immigrant at the expense of Canadian taxpayers. So when you added that up, uh, so for example, 2.7 million immigrants who arrived between 1987 and 2004 and still live in Canada, the cost of taxpayers, $16.3 billion. Um, now, if you look at the um, 1.5 million immigrants who arrived since 2004, the fiscal burden came to $25 billion in 2010. These costs represent a significant portion of the federal government's $55 billion deficit projected for, that was a fiscal year 2011. So the point is, there's a there's a significant cost here per immigrant. So if, what are we talking about in terms of a cost? Have, has anyone worked that out? If they're if they're earning on average less than than the average Canadian, but but pulling social benefits out of the system, what is it costing per immigrant? Do we know? Yes, that's a study from the Fraser Institute. You're absolutely right, and I didn't see another one, but that's the reality. And you know. You cannot say that in Canada right now. It's not politically correct. There's a cost, and, and there's a big cost there. And I hope that the Fraser Institute can do another study looking at that. But yes, when you have only 25% of them that are still immigrants, and you have a lot of refugees and reunification of family, these people are not w working the day that they are coming to Canada. We have to pay for them. So there's a cost there. But the proponent of mass immigration are saying, you know, we need to have more people because in Canada, we have fewer people of working age due to aging of the population. That's what they're saying. But, you know, according to Statistic Canada, yesterday, they did a, a study and they published it yesterday. And according to Statistic Canada, an increase in immigration would not significantly stop that trend because immigrants are not so young. So uh, we need to have that real discussion. There's a cost there and there's benefits for our country. But when you have mass immigration like that, it, we cannot sustain that. That's the reality. You were talking about integration late, uh, before. And, you know, again, this is one of those taboo subjects, which, you know, it's ridiculous. It shouldn't be. You cannot have uh, a country if you don't have a common tongue or two. Uh, and I'm not sure what the current rules and regulations are in, in, in terms of uh, new arrivals coming into, into the country and, and a, what the degree of competency should be with either of the official languages. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? I mean, what, what are the, the competency requirements for, the, uh, for your, the, the ability to speak French or English? 
but it is not like it was. And if you don't speak English or French, you can come to our country. You have fewer points. It's a point system. But if you achieve a level, you'll be able to come to our country if you don't speak the language. And actually, here in Quebec, the Quebec government is spending a lot of money to uh, to train people to learn to uh, be sure that these people in Quebec will be able to speak French. And so uh, they have a, a lot of, they, they, they are putting a lot of resources in that. So answering your question, yes, you can come in our country and uh, without speaking English or French. That's the, the, the sad reality of today. But it was not the case uh, before, uh, you know, the last, I believe, 15 or 20 years. You had to speak English and French to be able. And that's normal because you want these people to be part of our society, to integrate our society. And it is easier if you speak the language. And that's why when I delivered my speech on immigration in 2019 uh, be, during the, the election campaign, and it's still our proposal in the crowd. I had a lot of uh, newcomers and immigrants that came here 20 years ago or five years ago or 25 years ago, and they came here following the rules, and it was tough for them to come here. And now we have open borders for everybody. So they're saying it's not fair, and they're, they're right about it. All right, Max, another time we'll come back. One more segment with the Honorable Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, right here on the Richard Sarah Show Saga 960. The Bull Session continues on the Richard Sarah Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, the federal government is set to increase immigration levels to this country by half a million Per year, starting in 2025, a half a million immigrants entering the country every year for the foreseeable future. How will they be integrated? These are questions we're not allowed to ask. Uh, but we're having that discussion right now. The Honorable Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, stays with us. Uh, one of the things that the Fraser Institute su um, suggested, and again, this was a study or a paper going back 10 years, uh, temporary work visas for immigrants with job offers. So you issue them a work visa, it's temporary, um, it would be valid for two years, and then after two years, if they, can, if they, if they still have employment, you can ex extend that for another two years, and then I believe two years after that, so a, a total of six years, if they're still employed, then they're offered citizenship. What are your thoughts? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Yes, I believe that we need them in uh, one sector, the agriculture sector, and uh, that's happening. But now some uh, employers in our country are using that 
And it's unfair for Canadian workers because they don't want to raise a salary for them. It's easier to have uh, temporary workers that will come with a low salary instead of giving an increase to a Canadian workers. So uh, I believe that we are issuing too many permits for that. It must be for the agriculture sector because we have a lack of manpower over there and Canadians don't want to uh, work there. But, you know, now it's more general in a lot of other uh, sectors, and I believe that it will be more difficult. It must be more difficult for an employer to uh, have a temporary workers. He must look here in Canada, and if he's not able to find somebody, it may be because the salary is too low. Uh, what about the idea of, um, let's say an immigrant arrives has work, wants to bring parents and grandparents over. What about the idea of the, uh, an immigrant posting a bond, essentially, uh, so that they would be responsible for, uh, and from these, you know, posting these bonds, the, the money there would be used for uh, social benefits. In other words, so the taxpayers aren't on the hook. Yeah, that's a nice idea. We can look at that. Uh, but, you know, when you are an immigrant, uh, and I understand that you had to uh, take a very difficult decision in your life to leave your country and, and becoming a citizen of another country. Uh, but uh, And I, I agree that you must have the right to have your family with you. But now, reunification of family, it's more than your wife or husband and your kids. It's, uh, like you said, your grandma, granddad, sister, brothers. Uh, and that must not be the case. Uh, you know, you, you, you decided to come here. You decided to leave behind uh, some of your uh, friends and, and, and family. And that was your decision. You must have the right to have your your family, your, your husband and 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 kids and uh, and wife, but not the extended family like they they can do right now. If you were prime minister, would you would you grant provinces greater a greater say in immigration levels the way that Quebec has? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know because the working uh, uh, force is different in in different provinces they have different needs so yes we must recognize that and the federal government is doing that by giving a special uh, uh, privilege to Quebec but it must be the same for every province you know if you need more uh, plumber in Alberta you must be able to uh, have some criteria to be sure to have uh, more of these uh, workers for you absolutely it must be more decentralized. Where are the other parties on this? Well, particularly the Conservative Party. Obviously, the NDP are in lockstep with the Liberals. I would think that the Conservatives would have or should have some serious uh, issues with these immigration levels. I'm not hearing anything from the Conservative bench. You won't. And and the Conservative, uh, the Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, the Green, they they are all in the same boat. You won't because... uh, uh, it's not. It's very risky to speak about that, and you'll have all the mainstream media against you. And actually, if you want to win, you want to have more seat in the big GDA, and where there's a lot of immigrants, and and they are pandering to them because you know they want more of reunification of family, and uh, I can understand that. So that's why we are not pandering to anybody, and we believe that the best for the country would be. 
to have a sustainable immigration system, but the other uh, political parties are okay with the status quo. Actually, the the, the conservative critics uh, yesterday said that you know he, he is in line with that plan to have half a million immigrants in 2025. So that's the position of the conservative party, and uh, and they're doing that because it must be. Uh, profitable uh, politically uh, to have that position. All right. Well, Max, great discussion. And I hope uh, we'll have more of these. We have to talk about immigration. We have to be able, allowed to talk about immigration. I appreciate your time as always. Thank you. And you're right. We have to speak about that because like Trudeau said, you know, Canada is not a post-national state with no core identity. And that's why we must speak about immigration. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. All right, we'll uh, take your calls. Coming up next, 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. We can talk about anything you'd like. 289-275-9600. The Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960. Don't go away. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. We'll take your calls just ahead of Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation talking about the Governor Generals. That would be Mary Mae Simon, Her Excellency Mary Mae Simon. Her Middle East trip uh, last March cost taxpayers $1.3 million, according to documents posted on the Government Operations Committee website. And what are we getting for this? What are we getting for this? Sounds like one just one big dinner party. All right, let's go to the phones. 289-275-9600. And we'll uh, welcome Shane, who is calling from Toronto, I believe. Hey, Shane, welcome. Yes, Richard. Yeah, I am calling from Toronto. I uh, just wanted to say, yeah, I think you got a great show. I like uh, listening to you. I listen to you, try to listen to you every day. But uh, quickly, I know you don't have a lot of time, but uh, this immigration thing, I mean, in my view, it's out of control. 500,000 people a year. I don't know if you're aware of uh, what the uh, demographic statistics are showing in the city of Brampton right now, but it's 40% immigrant now. Mm-hmm. And if you got 500,000 people coming in, that means, uh, what, uh, 40% of them are going to come to Ontario? That's 200,000 people, and probably 75% of them are going to end up in uh, Brampton. And the problem, I think, is that the people they're bringing in, they're not from Europe anymore. They're all from, uh, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, mostly from India. And I don't know, I know people don't want to hear it, and they think it's prejudice, but just let me tell you, my father is a, an immigrant. And, you know, my mother's fourth generation Canadian. So I, I don't have anything against immigrants. But when you get a situation like you got in Brampton right now, where it's almost 50% immigrant from from India, and these people really, I don't, people don't want to hear it. Well, hey, I want to continue because I don't, I'm, uh, when, you, when you preface a statement, I know people don't want to hear it. We have to be careful. So first of all, the issue to me is not the country you come from. There should be a proficiency in the language. Uh, because otherwise, if you don't have a proficiency in the language, it's very difficult to integrate into society. And that's where the problem begins. It's nothing to do with the, the country that you're coming from. Um, the other issue is 
If you look at the problem with Brampton, it's growing so quickly. We just don't have the infrastructure. That's the other issue. We don't have the housing. We don't have the roads. We don't have infrastructure. Our health care is already on the verge of collapse. I'm not talking about the country of origin. Yes, it's important to have some common values. Uh, but most of all, it's important. You know, it's so important to have a common tongue. We must. You cannot have a country. If you don't have a common tongue, I remember John uh, Tory, uh, Shane, thank you for the call. Um, I remember John Tory. This was when the Raptors, I believe, won the um, the NBA championship. And he was uh, celebrating and talking about, you know, how wonderful it was that, um, you know, we, we can't communicate with one another in one single language. He thought that that is a strength. And he was talking to the people of Toronto. You know, we, we come from all over, which is fine. And uh, it's great. We, we don't even have a common language. No, that's not good. That's not a plus. That's, that's sowing the seeds for divisiveness. You cannot integrate people. You cannot have a country unless you can communicate. If you want to speak, you, you know, your mother tongue and teach your children in your home and preserve your culture on your own time, that's fine. God bless you. But you must have a proficiency or you should have a proficiency in either French or English in order to become a citizen, in order to immigrate to this country. And that's not racism. That's just common sense. But the other issue, of course, is just the numbers. Regardless of where they're coming from. I don't care if, you've, if you're bringing in 500,000 Icelanders every year. We don't have the infrastructure. Our hospital, our healthcare system is on the verge of collapse. We have a housing crisis. And it takes new arrivals, maybe half a generation to get up on their feet and, and start earning a decent living. And I understand there are some, some certification things that we could do so that when we have a brain surgeon coming to this country from India or Iceland or South Africa, I don't care. They shouldn't have to be driving cab for 10 years because they can't get certified. So, yes, there are things that we can do that we should do to speed up the certification process in whatever field. But by and large, they earn less than, than people that are already here, citizens that are already here. And yet they're drawing the same amount in social benefits. And if they bring extended family, it's a greater uh, financial burden on, on taxpayers. These are just realities. It has nothing to do with your country of origin. Except, again, I, I need to emphasize a proficiency in one of the two official languages. That's essential. All right, when we come back, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, is here, and uh, we'll talk about Her Excellency's big trip to the Middle East, costing taxpayers $1.3 million. That story's next. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Her Excellency, the Right Honorable Mary May Simon, the Governor General 
A week-long trip to the Middle East back in March cost taxpayers $1.3 million. These are according to documents posted on the Government Operations Committee website. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Franco, welcome back. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. So what was this trip for to uh, to the Middle East that the uh, the governor general went to? Well, it was, uh, it was a, a week-long trip to Dubai, Expo 2020, so a big festival uh, for a bunch of dignitaries to, to you know, to, to do the meet and greet. But hey, that brings up the real big question here. You're spending $1.3 million from the taxpayer for a week-long trip. Now, what value are taxpayers getting for this? And Richard, remember, this is the same, this is the same sh- uh, trip where the story about the fancy airplane food was released, right? So, so these bureaucrats are whining and are, are, are dining on our on our dime, I should say, right? They're enjoying beef Wellington, they're enjoying uh, pork stuffed tenderloin. But what value do taxpayers get from this? Because I'm pretty sure most Canadians back home would rather see that 1.3 million dollars allocated towards hiring more nurses or helping struggling Canadians, and not spending 1.3 million dollars on a week long trip to the Middle East. Right, right. The um, the in flight catering that was the uh, the contentious issue. Um, did you finally get detailed receipts for that? We sure did. You know, uh, these bureaucrats were brought to committee and they were telling the committee members that they didn't have the receipts available. Well, you know what? That doesn't pass the sniff test because I had the receipts right in hand. Richard, let me read to you some of the fancy meals that they were having on board. Beef Wellington with reju served with roasted baby potatoes seasoned with rosemary and garlic. I don't even know what reju is, but it sounds fancy. Let me let me read you another item on the menu here. Apple and cranberry stuffed pork tenderloin served with oven roasted cube squash. Another one, pan fried chicken scallopini and creamy mushroom wine reduction sauce. So doesn't that just sound fancy? And at the time in committee, these bureaucrats were saying, you know, we're really surprised with the cost. You know, we had eggs, we had omelet. Well, I don't know. The receipts that I have in front of me are showing that they were indeed having some fancy feasts aboard the plane there. And and how many were in the governor general's uh, entourage, if you will? Uh, that's a good question. I believe it was about 28, but I don't have that number right off the top of my head. And, and, and who are the, who are these people that accompanied her? Are they just family and friends or are they, uh, and staff or? Richard, I don't have that information. We don't have that information available to us. I mean, maybe it's online with some of the documents that they posted, but we don't know. Here's what we do know. We know that the total trip was a week long. It cost $1.3 million and, uh, we have yet to hear the government explain to taxpayers what value, if any, that we got for that $1.3 million tab that we're paying. Uh, but Richard, let me tell you some of the crazy expenses that were going on after they landed. So while they were on the ground, they paid 160 bucks almost for some travel guidebooks. What, they don't have Google on their phone that they can use? <laughs> um, look, another was about $45,000 spent on a canceled trip to Abu Dhabi. Now, we don't know why it was canceled, but we do know that taxpayers paid $45,000 for it. And it turns out that the governor general and her entourage stayed in a few five-star hotels while they're in the Middle East, uh, including the uh, Sheraton Grand Doha in Qatar and the Emirates Towers in Dubai. Wow. You know, (laughs) the obvious comparison, we go back to um, uh, Bev Oda and that $16 uh, orange juice. Um, when was that? Um, 
back in 2012, I think. It was a little while ago, but here, yeah. let me keep reading here because I got some more crazy expenses, okay? okay. Uh, and, and here's back to the in-flight expenses. $230 for flower arrangements. $300 for beef carpaccio. That's an Italian dish of uh, thinly sliced raw meat. Fancy, fancy. Uh, $340 spent on baklava, uh, a type of Mediterranean pastry. You have $189 thereabout spent for, quote, VIP sliced fruit <laughs> and 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 wow. here's maybe the chair the cherry on top uh the governor general mary simon's meals they were expected to be specially plated and prepared with quote appropriate garnish ah you mean you add that on top of the six thousand dollar a night for the that hotel in uh, in london and we still don't know who stayed there during the um the, the queen elizabeth's funeral uh it's 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 just like one Marie Antoinette moment on top of another. It's like they're just deliberately like shoving this in our face saying, here you go, peasants, deal with this. $1.3 million for a week-long trip to the Middle East. Uh, $54 million for the Arrive Can app, double the price that was originally disclosed to the public. $6,000 for a night stay in a hotel room. Five nights, add that up, $30,000 for one hotel room. They still won't tell us who stayed in that. And then on top of that, $55,000 a year is what taxpayers are paying for the prime minister's household food expenses. So waste story after waste story after waste story after waste story, not to mention the government is uh, not really being transparent with taxpayers. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that it's becoming abundantly more clear, if it ever wasn't, that the government isn't even trying to clean up its waste. No, no. Like I say, they flaunt it. They just throw it in our face saying, what are you going to do about it? Um, it's I mean, I mentioned that Bev Oda back in I think it was 2012. So 10 years ago. And um, she was uh, international development minister and she caught a lot of flack because she expensed a $16 glass of orange juice, which she later paid back a $16 glass of orange juice. I mean, that's a, a glass of orange juice probably would cost you that now because of inflation. But uh, how far we have fallen. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely crazy. Hey, and then just speaking of Rideau Hall and the governor general, let's not forget that a former governor general, when they leave office, they are still entitled to expense the taxpayer $200,000 every year for the rest of their life and up to six months after their death. And then, oh, yeah, don't forget about the Payette pension problem where you have a governor general, Julie Payette, who served for a little bit more than three years and she could still bill. She's still eligible to receive about four point eight million dollars through her, her pension to age 90. Unconscionable, unconscionable. All right, Franco, we're glad that you're keeping your eye on the till. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on tonight. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, taxpayer.com, taxpayer.com. And uh, if you go there, I believe uh, they have the um, the receipts for the in-flight catering for uh, Mary Mae Simon. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. The 
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.